This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. In any dire confrontation, there's always a point where a catastrophe can be stopped. Ukraine is that opportunity. And we all in the free world must be unwavering in our pursuit of our desires and goals. Just as Putin is frank about his doom-laden ambitions. They blew me from this side of the room to the front door. Okay, we must, we must get the fuck out from here. As the battlefield stalemate continues and deliveries of Western military aid remain blocked by political squabbles, the question of where the war in Ukraine ends has resurfaced again in diplomatic circles. Uh, you know, there, there are some things that are non-negotiable and then of course there are things that it would be sensible to talk about. But is a peace settlement a pipe dream? Russia has a choice. They can either choose a diplomatic... And if Western aid to Ukraine is withdrawn, does that increase or decrease the chances of a settlement being reached? Can Ukraine really trust the negotiated peace with Putin? Time was lost. And the lives of many, of many of our most experienced warriors who fought since 2014 were lost. Some opportunities were lost. My name is Oz Katerji. This is not a drill. Hello, and welcome back to This Is Not A Drill. In today's episode, we will be focusing on peace talks between Russia and Ukraine from the start of the full-scale invasion till today, and assessing what realistic chances they have of succeeding. In the early months of war, some reports suggested that the two warring sides were tentatively close to an agreement shortly before the Russian atrocities in Butcher and Irpin were uncovered. But how serious were these negotiations? And how close were the two parties really to signing an agreement that would have seen Russian troops withdraw in exchange for an agreement for Ukraine to not join NATO? Was this an opportunity missed? Did former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson really convince Zelensky to walk away from the talks? Or did the mass graves in the Kiev Oblast end any chance at an early settlement? With Joe Biden's 61.4 billion US dollar military and financial aid package to Ukraine still being blocked by congressional Republicans, the ammunition supply Ukraine relies on to defend its skies from Russian attacks is running critically low. 
Hungary's Viktor Orban also continues to veto a 50 billion euro EU aid package to Ukraine, further limiting Kiev's ability to repel Russian advances in the east of the country. Ukraine is likely going to be on a defensive footing for 2024, but Ukraine's ability to stay in the fight has some figures in the West asking whether it is time to force Ukraine to make concessions at the negotiating table with Russia. But what would a negotiated settlement between Ukraine and Russia even look like? And would any treaty signed by the Russians simply be used as an opportunity for the Kremlin to regroup and rearm before launching another invasion aimed at destroying the Ukrainian state once and for all. Later, we'll hear from foreign policy expert Dr. Angela Stent, whose articles with Dr. Fiona Hill were among the first to bring the details of the initial negotiations to the world's attention. But first, I spoke with Ukrainian journalist and chief foreign affairs correspondent at the Wall Street Journal and author of the book, Our Enemies Will Vanish, Yaroslav Trofimov. Welcome to the show, Yaroslav. Thanks very much for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. The Wall Street Journal, your paper, they published a, a front page, you know, giving all the lowdown on those peace negotiations that happened in March 2022. Now, there's been a lot of back and forth uh, with that, particularly with Naftali Bennett. Some people seem to have the impression that Ukraine and Russia were very close to a peace agreement. Now, the picture that you paint from the information that you've gathered is very different to that narrative. But I'd like to to begin first with, were they ever close to a peace? And what kind of peace, uh, using peace in quotation marks here, was being offered by this supposed deal? Right. So there were um, two stages to this. The first one was the first round of talks in Belarus. This was a time, four days into the war, this was a time when Ukraine really had a gun to its head. Kiev was nearly surrounded. The situation was catastrophic. Ukraine was just mobilizing its reserves. And so uh, the Ukrainians, when, who went there, were really facing a demand for capitulation. What the Russians requested, demanded, was the Ukrainian army give away all the heavy weapons, new government in Kiev, Russian as the official language, even renaming the streets of Ukrainian cities that were named after Ukrainian national heroes. So pretty much surrender and installation of a puppet regime. By the time the uh, Ukrainian delegation came to the next round of talks, the next large round of talks in Istanbul, on March 29th, the situation on the battlefield had changed dramatically. What happened is that the Russians had just lost their um, outpost their sort of stronghold in Moschun, which was the only place where they managed to get on the Kiev side of the Yupin River. So this most direct threat to take Kiev abated, and then Ukrainian forces managed to inflict massive damage on Russian uh, supply lines and columns. So all over northern Ukraine, the Russian lines started to crumble. And so when the Ukrainians came to Istanbul, they continued talking, but on different conditions. And again, they were, they were empowered to talk. They were not empowered to sign anything, because you know the membership in NATO is something that is in the Ukrainian constitution. It's not something that a delegation of mid-level officials in Istanbul can sign away. And uh, the agreement that was being discussed there was not an actual deal. Even though Putin you know, claimed that there was a deal, he waived this piece of paper with the different conditions, and there were two, two differing numbers of troops, heavy weapons, tanks, artillery that the Ukrainians could have and the Russians could have. 
there was still a huge gap in the two numbers. Uh, but most importantly, uh, the situation on the ground having changed, Ukraine no longer had a gun to its head. And pretty much everyone came understood that accepting any limitation on Ukrainian armed forces going forward would just make it easier for Russia to do it again. There was no agreement on a return to the, uh, or no promise of Russia to agree to the return to the February 24th lines because Russia by then had recognized the so-called independence of the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. And in fact, when the Russians announced the withdrawal from the Kiev area, they said it is to focus on the liberation of Donbass. So that area was something that Russia wasn't going to claim anyway. And then when the Ukrainian delegations returned to Kiev and still pursued this contact on Zoom, Ukrainian forces entered Bucha. And everyone realized what actually happens under Russian rule because nobody knew the level of atrocities that were being committed. You know, the Russians had an information blackout, cut off phone lines, and suddenly there were all those streets strewn with bodies, tortured people, you know, executed. And that really hit a nerve in Ukraine, especially with Zelensky. And I think the realization dawned on many Ukrainians that it's not just a war to replace a government in Kiev to have a more friendly regime. It's really a war to wipe out Ukraine as a nation, as a people, as a culture, uh, a war that has a genocidal intent. And I think that made it, combined with the defeat of the Russians on the battlefield, it made it much harder for Ukraine to accept any limitation on its ability to defend itself in the future because it would just be arrested for losing the next war. And, you know, into this picture waltzes in Boris Johnson uh, the second week of April. And he did speak to Zelensky and he did tell me that, you know, he urged Ukraine to not sign up to any deal with Putin for the very same reasons, because he felt that giving Putin anything would just encourage the crocodile to bite again. And that was also the beginning of the serious discussion with the uh, with the West and the U.S. about supplying Western weapons that proved to be instrumental later in the war. What were the Russians offering in Istanbul? The key parts of the deal, such as to which lines Russia would return, what's going to happen to Crimea, what's going to happen to Donbass, were supposed to be deferred to a future meeting between uh, Putin and Zelensky, the meeting that never happened. The issue of neutrality of Ukraine, something that Russia really focused on, to them didn't just mean not being a member of NATO. It also meant stopping Western arms supplies, stopping Western training, which had been going on for years, which was basically making sure Ukraine is no longer going to be able to defend itself. But it was very clear to them, especially after Bucha, that agreeing to anything like that, agreeing to basically you know, being defenseless going forward uh, would be just a recipe for another invasion. And it was clear that neither the U.S. nor NATO would provide any separate guarantees of security that the Ukrainians had been seeking at the time. But we can categorically say from, according to your reporting and the sources that you have, there was just an, uh, discussions in principle that there would be more discussions between Zelensky and Putin at a later date about what Russia would concede. So there was no agreement, according to your sources and your reporting, that Ukraine and Russia were close to agreement in which Russia had agreed to pull out of Ukraine. Absolutely not. not and especially not from Donbass, because the end Russian announcement that day was we're withdrawing troops from Kiev to focus on liberating Donbass. And from my impression being on the ground in Kyiv, 
there was never any belief or understanding or nobody had any faith in these talks resulting in anything at all and the kind of idea that uh that really Kiev itself and Zelensky's government were desperate for a, a peace agreement and to make concessions to Russia is not borne out in the reality. Could you talk me through the Ukrainian side of things, uh, particularly the idea that the Russians, having been routed in Kiev, uh, were probably licking their wounds and hoping to go again at another point in time later down the line. Was that the Ukrainian understanding of what was going on? Or did the Ukrainians have more faith in, in the Russian negotiating position as it was? No, I think the Ukrainians realized from the very beginning, and then even from before the war, you know, the Russian goal is, is not Ukraine's neutrality, it's have Ukraine as a vassal state. They use negotiations to play for time. Uh, and they told me that... You know, we tried to ask for other things, like you know, opening the humanitarian corridor for Mariupol. So, so for little tactical benefits, especially for the civilians, it was always useful to have this dialogue going. But I don't think they have had any faith in this achieving anything. When Zelensky started speaking at the time, in the first weeks of the war, that yes, well, NATO really doesn't want us, and we're ready to consider neutrality, he said neutrality in the context of a multilateral security guarantee for Ukraine, endorsed by the Russians, but also in a binding fashion by the US. Effectively, an analogous to uh, NATO Article 5 is what he was asking, which seems to be lost in translation. Yeah, exactly. And obviously, you know, no one at the time was going to sign up to that in the West. And so in the Russian understanding, as I said earlier, neutrality means disarming. And that's not something that any Ukrainian government could sign up to because... They, they saw very well what disarming led to in 2014, when the Ukrainian army was unable to defend the country and the Crimea was seized without, you know, practically any resistance. And it took the volunteer unions and civilians to go to Donbass and stop the Russian slot there. So let's let's bring it forward back to uh, today, 2024. Um, Zelensky has uh, recently said that he is hoping to uh, organize some sort of conference with Switzerland about peace. Now, the understanding from everyone in Ukraine is that this is about the Ukrainian peace plan, which is very maximalist in its intentions and still includes Crimea and is in no way Ukraine signaling that it's ready to capitulate or offer massive concessions mm -hmm. to Russia at all. What's your take on Switzerland uh, briefly and then beyond Switzerland, uh, the idea that there can be some kind of negotiated peace between Russia and Ukraine in which uh, Russia's opinion, Russia's words, Russia's promises that it won't try and invade again can be taken seriously by the West. You know, if you're in Ukraine's position, uh, how do you move forward with these with these kinds of, uh, you know, things going on? Well, I think I think now that, you know, Western support, especially American financial support, is drying up because of congressional disagreements and opposition by Republicans, Ukraine finds itself in this weird position of being portrayed as the party that doesn't want peace. Everybody's talking about, you know, putting, you know, forcing Ukraine to the negotiating table. And the irony of the situation is, is that Russia and Putin at least this year, is absolutely not likely to agree to any negotiations that even freeze the conflict of the current lines. Because why should he? I think he has 
an expectation that without Western support, Ukraine's military could be rolled back. And if you look at it from his perspective, the perspective of Russia, you know, Russia has conducted a so-called referenda, you know, in Zaporizhia, Kherson, Donetsk, Lugansk, without even controlling any of them fully, and declared all these regions to be parts of Russia, something that's never been done in international law. Uh, but that means that right now the fighting is exclusively carried out on the territory of the Russian Federation as a Russian constitution. Two Russian regional capitals, Zaporizhia and Kherson, are under quote-unquote Ukrainian occupation. Uh, it's really hard to imagine Putin settling on this state of affairs. And I think the Ukrainian diplomatic initiatives, in a way, call, call, call this bluff. And, it's, and, and the aim is to say, well, it's not us who are the obstacle to peace. It's the other guys who are on the offensive now. And who keep saying that, you know, as Putin said, Odessa is a Russian city. Medvedev says uh, that Kiev is a Russian city. Let's finish the, the peace talk discussion here. What are the realistic chances of some kind of negotiated settlement between Ukraine and Russia uh, happening in the next, let's say, 18-month timeline? I think the only negotiation can happen as a result of one of the sides suffering a significant defeat in the battlefield. Right now, we have a dynamic stalemate where a lot of people are dying every day, but the front line has barely budged you know, since the fall of Kherson in, in November 2022. You know, Bakhmut is one small town was taken by the Russians at tremendous cost, but it's the only town they have taken. So uh, the positions are just too far apart. It's much more convenient politically for Putin to continue this fighting than to accept defeat. Because accepting, I mean, for, for Russia, accepting the current situation as a permanent settlement, in a way, is also defeat. Because the strategic goal of winning Ukraine from the West uh, has not been achieved. Russia controls only 18% of Ukraine. It has been unable to stop Ukraine's movements towards the EU. Even though Ukraine is not in NATO, it's already very much integrated militarily uh, uh, with the Western alliance, you know, using Western weapons. And it looks like this year is going to be just a year of Ukraine trying to defend what it has and prevent a Russian victory. It's going to be a war of resilience between two societies. I think the war is likely to be decided by which society cracks first. Will it be Russia, due to the weight of economic sanctions, weight of casualties on the front line, uh, and all the other unforeseen things that are public under the surface that we don't know about, like we didn't know about, you know, Prigozhin's you know, plans uh, that showed really how brittle the Russian system is, or it will be Ukraine, where you know we know there are also political tensions, so far hidden, so far people put them aside. But if there are military setbacks, if money runs out, if the economy nosedives even more, you know, Ukraine is also a fragile state potentially. You know, people are only human, and they've been during two years of very, very difficult circumstances. And that's where the role of the West is so important because it's only thanks to Western support that Ukraine can outlast Russia in this. As we heard from Yaroslav Trofimov, Russia's aggression and the nuances of discussions means any potential deal for peace must be balanced with significant risk factors. 
Dr. Angela Stent, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution and author of Putin's World, joined us on the show to analyze the wider context of the conflict today and any potential negotiations that may arise in the future. Back in 2022, many seized on a piece by Dr. Stent and Dr. Fiona Hill, which described the deal's terms and risks, and wrote of the intervention of leaders such as Joe Biden and Boris Johnson. Hello, Angela. Thanks so much for coming on to the show. One of the articles that you and Dr. Fiona Hill wrote early on in the war was about uh, the mischance for peace talks in Istanbul in March 2022. How close do you think Ukraine and Russia really were? Was it a serious discussion? Well, I'm glad you've asked me that because there are a lot of myths around what happened. Uh, The Ukrainians and Russians did sit down uh, and they did begin uh, negotiations about a possible peace deal. But the Russians, first of all, sent a fairly low-level person, Vladimir Medinsky, uh, who didn't have very close contacts with Putin, to these discussions. Uh, And so I think we have to question how serious the Russians were about this. Um, I think They always like to show that they're willing to negotiate and have people sit down because they think that then people will think that they're genuine about trying to resolve this. That doesn't mean that they actually wanted to negotiate a peace plan. And so these talks went on for a few weeks. Uh, And then, of course, what happened is that they discovered the atrocities at Bucha. Um, The Ukrainians understood uh, that the Russians really weren't very serious about any of this. And at that point, I think the Kremlin had lost interest. I mean, I think we have to remember that Putin's goal right from the beginning was to, quote unquote, denazify and demilitarize Ukraine. Denazify means getting rid of Zelensky and a pro-Western government there and putting in a government that would be pro-Russian. And then, of course, demilitarization. Um, And of course, in the beginning, the Russians did want to conquer all of Ukraine and take Kiev, but they failed to do that. So I think there, there's so many myths that people going around saying, oh, you know, the, the Ukrainians were willing to sign this, but Boris Johnson jettisoned it or Joe Biden jettisoned it. That's really not the historical record. Uh, and I think, I don't know how serious the Russians were ever about this negotiation, uh, but they certainly, uh, the way that they acted showed in the end that they weren't. So that that's really, really just incredible to hear you say, uh, particularly the the bit about the myths, because one of the myths that was, again, you as you said, Boris Johnson, but your article and Dr. Hill's article is frequently cited as being supportive of that. But as you said, it was completely different to how it's being misinterpreted. Right. And we, I mean, we're dealing with this all the time. You know, every time we think it's died down, some other article comes out and and then goes back to what we said. And what we said was based on talking to people who knew what was going on. Uh, And that's why I'm glad that Trofimov, you know, who was in Ukraine um, at that point and knew what was going on. I'm glad that he's now again come out on the basis of his extensive interviews with people and and uh, said that this wasn't true. Let's move the timeline forward uh, mm-hmm. to now, pretty much. Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, talk in the press, more than in kind of military circles, uh, but in the press, a lot of talk is centered around, well, Ukraine maybe should consider negotiating. From my perspective, the two sides are so far apart, they both have maximalist aims. My understanding of it is there's really no chance uh, realistically right now, but I'm interested to hear your perspective. 
Well, I mean, I have to say I agree with you. Let's just look at what Putin has said in the last week. You know, he said Russia doesn't have any borders. You know, there's an election campaign poster up in Moscow with a picture of him saying we have no borders. Well, we understand what that means. You know, Ukraine is part of Russia. Um, We've had, you know, Medvedev, who's often the attack dog in these things, again, saying the Ukrainian state's going to cease to exist. There is absolutely no indication that the Russians are serious about negotiating a real peace deal. What we do have is things that are leaked to the Western media that, yes, the Russians are putting out feelers and they would be willing to negotiate. Well, that means, again, in the run-up to Putin's re-election campaign, Russia would appear to be magnanimous, but that doesn't mean that they would be willing to, to come to an actual peace deal unless, and Putin has said that, the pre condition for that would be Ukraine accepting all of Russia's conditions. And what are those conditions? I mean, they shift, but the minimum condition is the recognition of the annexation of the four territories, uh, the Donbass and Zaporizhia and Kherson region, none of which Russia fully controls. No Ukrainian government is willing, would be willing to accept that. If Zelensky were willing to accept that, he'd be out next week. But I mean, it wouldn't give Ukraine any security guarantees of its territory. So I think all of this talk, you know, there are lots of articles saying Ukraine has to realize that it can't win this war uh, and therefore it should sit down with the Russians and then go on with its hopeful, you know, application to join the European Union and maybe at some point join NATO. I mean, that's just completely unrealistic um, because unfortunately, short of Ukraine joining NATO, and that's not on the cards at the moment, um, that's the only security guarantee it would have. I mean, yes, Rishi Sunak was just in Kiev, and Great Britain and Ukraine did sign uh, an agreement on security guarantees. There are 30 more countries that are supposed to do that. uh, But at the moment, we're very far from having any kind of watertight security guarantees for Ukraine. So you speak of the, the unrealistic kind of demands of some voices in the press, What is more realistic going forward, looking forward uh, for 2024? Well, I think, unfortunately, in 2024, the the war will grind on. Uh, We know that the Russians have increased their attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure, on Ukrainian civilians, on Ukrainian cities. We've seen the Ukrainians have some success uh, in Belgorod. They've destroyed some uh, Russian aircraft, uh, Russian ships. Uh, the Black Sea Fleet now uh, cannot really operate out of Sevastopol. It's back in Russia, in Novorossi. So the Ukrainians destroyed about 20% of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. Uh, but still, um, the Russians have made some incremental territorial gains. They're getting Lots of ammunition now from North Korea. The North Korean foreign minister was just in Moscow this week. Who knows what they negotiated, but I'm sure they're going to be getting more from the North Koreans and the Iranians, of course, are providing them with the drones. Uh, And the Ukrainians are now more or less in a defensive position. But having said all that, there are a number of big unknowns here, which is if Western support for Ukraine doesn't continue in 2024, then it's going to be much more difficult for the Ukrainians. So we have this debate going on in the U.S. Congress uh, where the Republicans are tying more assistance to Ukraine, and we're talking about $60 billion, to a resolution of Uh, the situation, the difficult situation on the southern border in the United States. In other words, they're making Ukrainian assistance hostage to disagreements on how you deal uh, with the asylum seeker problem here. 
Now, one of the uh, more interesting things about this particular aid package that is struggling to get through Congress, it's much larger than anything the US had given up to date. So far, the US has given like 80 billion US dollars roughly, but this one would be matching everything that's happened so far almost. Um, so getting it through Congress would be a huge deal for Ukraine in a way that previous aid packages really hadn't been. Do you think there is a chance that it does eventually get through Congress in the next few early months? It could. But the problem is we're in an election year. Now, I have to say in the Senate, uh, the Republicans do support Ukraine and they have come to an agreement on, uh, you know, whereby the Ukraine and Israel is also included in this bill, that they would both, uh, you know, receive um, this funding so that in the Senate it's agreed. The problem is the House of Representatives and because of their razor thin majority, the Republicans, which is by now down to one or two seats, depending on who's ill and who isn't, uh, you know, the, the new Speaker of the House is also hostage to the small group of, I would say, extreme Trump-type Republicans who don't see why we should be funding Ukraine, the money should be going somewhere else. And in a way, they repeat some of the talking points at the Kremlin about the corrupt Ukrainian government, etc. And so because of this situation, um, and, and also because particularly the House Republicans don't want to be seen to be giving Biden and the Biden administration a victory, that could make it very difficult to get this legislation through. We're really in a very polarized and almost paralyzed state in terms of our legislature. Um, so one of the misconceptions, the common misconceptions, is that cutting funding for Ukraine uh, would lead the Ukrainians, it would force the Ukrainians to agree some kind of peace deal. Uh, what's your view on that? I don't think that's true at the moment. I mean, the Ukrainians will continue to fight. Uh, they are still getting weapons, of course, from Europe. And in fact, Europe by now, I think, has overtaken the United States in, in terms of the amount of money um, it has supplied to Ukraine. So I think they would continue fighting. They are trying to ramp up their own domestic production of weapons. But of course, it's going to take uh, months, you know, at least, if not a year uh, to do that. So I don't think that would immediately force them to a negotiating table. You know, what might force them, you know, would be if there's a lot of popular discontent and popular calls for having negotiations and ending the war. But I don't see that happening in Ukraine. I mean, the resolve of the Ukrainian people is still very strong. And I also think we have to question would Putin sit down with Zelensky or would the Russians sit down with the Ukrainians? Some people believe that the Russians will only sit down with the United States. That's what they want in terms of negotiation. Now, here's the, the big elephant in the room is they Russians might get what they want in the shape of Donald Trump, who will gladly, in my opinion, uh, make concessions on Ukraine's behalf that he has no right to make in a negotiation with Putin. So what is the real danger of a Trump presidency going forward? And can Ukraine's war effort survive this, you know, wild card like Donald Trump? Well, I think, you know, the danger is if he were elected president, certainly he and the people who surround him, the people whom he would you know, put in high positions, the Secretary of State, the National Security Advisor, uh, the Secretary of Defense, those people presumably would all agree that the United States shouldn't be supporting Ukraine and it should sit down with Russia and make some deal over the heads of the Ukrainians. Now, the question is, 
whether a President Trump could do that unilaterally or using his executive power and what the role of the Congress would be. So one of the questions is, what will the makeup of the US Congress look like after the November elections? So if you were speaking directly to European leaders uh, about what they can do to mitigate the harm of a Trump presidency, what would you be recommending they do right now? Well, much more European strategic autonomy. I think the war, the Russian war against Ukraine has shown how dependent Europe has been on the United States in terms of its security uh, and in terms of, you know, pushing back against Russia. So I think greater European strategic autonomy and great greater European resolve, it's spending more on defense. And we see that the Baltic states and Poland, these countries that are right next door to Ukraine, understand that. Uh, but you have to look at a country like Germany, which despite all the talk of a Titan vendor, you know, it's a new era. They really haven't put their money where their mouth is. They're not spending more on defense and making those investments. And it would be the same for France, for the other uh, European countries. But yes, I think this war will be going on, you know, for the next couple of years. It's hard to see uh, any end in sight. Uh, and it's also hard to see, you know, Putin and the other people in the Kremlin modifying their own war aims. So Europe should prepare for a Trump presidency and a long war. Um, what advice would you give to the Ukrainians right now who, you know, obviously this is going to become as bad news to them on the political front in Europe and, and America over the next couple of years? Well, I think the Ukrainians also have to prepare for a Trump presidency, and one assumes and hopes that they are they understand that. I think they do, uh, given Zelensky's own experiences uh, with the first Trump administration. Although, having said that, uh, in the Trump the first Trump administration, they did supply Ukraine with uh, lethal defensive weapons, which of course the Obama administration didn't. Uh, so again, it depends on the makeup of. Of, you know, who's calling the shots in that administration. But I think, yes, they need to try and ramp up their own uh, military production um, and to develop, you know, relations with other states that can support them. Uh, I mean, I think the fact that you had another meeting of this a group of countries in Davos, I think there were more than 80 of them discussing the Ukrainian peace plan, not that that's going to lead anywhere at the moment, but at least trying to mitigate the uh, neutrality of many of countries in the global south that aren't sympathetic to Ukraine. I think that's part of it. Uh, but I think it's also, you know, just securing, trying to secure more weapons. So let's look forward at Russia now. There hasn't really been external signs that the, the Russian uh, machine is creaking under the pressure yet. How long can Russia sustain the war at this particular cost? So at the moment, you know, the Russian economy is on a war footing. Um, the growth rate, you know, for last year was 3%, and I think it's going to be even more this year. The sanctions are biting, but they're not biting enough to really change the Russian trajectory here. Some people believe in 2024 they will bite more. Um, but And the average Russian really isn't feeling the impact of the sanctions that much. Um, so they'll be able to continue this for some time. And then the question is also, of are they going to have to mobilize more people? Uh, they're trying to avoid general mobilization uh, because, you know, the last time they tried to do that in September of uh, 2022, you know, hundreds of thousands of potential uh, soldiers left Russia and it would be unpopular. 
but um, they're trying to use, you know, migrant workers. They've used prisoners to mobilize. So that could also affect them going forward. But of course, it can also affect Ukraine, which doesn't have limitless numbers of people to mobilize. So my last question really is, uh, what are the dangers for Europe if Russia manages to win this war going forward? Well, I think we have to ask, how big is Putin's appetite? If you look at the uh, treaties that were presented uh, in December of 2021 to Europe and the United States, uh, the Russians made clear then that they really thought NATO should go back to where it was before the first enlargement. In other words, they still regard not only the post-Soviet space as part of Russia's domain, if you like, but also the former members of the Warsaw Pact. Um, I think if Russia were to win this war and defeat Ukraine, uh, I think the Baltic states are very concerned about whether Putin would set his sights on the Baltic states, which were, were of course, part of the Soviet Union, um, possibly Poland. I mean, not immediately, but I think the message will be that Russia you know, undertook an unprovoked invasion of a neighbor, got away with it, and the international community was not united to stop it. Um, so, if, you know, the European countries, I think, should be very concerned. And again, um, would really have to think about beefing up their own military and then with the United States, hopefully, working out how one can contain further Russian expansionism. If anyone thinks this is only about us, this is only about Ukraine, they are fundamentally mistaken. Let me ask very honestly, which European nation today can provide a combat-ready army on par with ours, holding back Russia? And how many men and women are your nation ready to send to defend another state, another nation. And if one must fight against Putin together in the years ahead, isn't it better to put an end to his war strategy now, while our brave men and women are already doing it? They are the world's chance. your favorite history nerds are back yes we at we are history have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops well i have john you mostly went around finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays if i can find them it's a bonus we are ready to tell you all about what we've learned from the revolting french to some revolting women via some brits abroad and a foul-mouthed irishman so download we are history our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast with me john o'farrell and me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. With the brutal war continuing to grind on in 2024, what does the future hold for Ukraine? Yaroslav Trofimov closes the show out with his final thoughts. From my perspective, um, Ukrainians I speak to every single day not one of them is is prepared to drop their maximalist goals for the war, even despite losing friends, family, 
people who've lost everything, they still want to pursue the war until its end. And I just wondered, is that your take on Ukrainian society uh, as well? Well, I mean, there are some people who say that, and there are others who dress up in women's clothes and escape to across the river to Europe because they don't want to fight. I think there is a, an element of society that doesn't really care who's in charge in Donetsk or Avdivka and uh, who would like the war to end. We don't know how many it is because there's no political force that verbalizes these feelings, you know, and everybody's sticking to the maximalist positions. But there, there is a number of people who say that. So when people ask me about the state of the war, uh, I say that from my perspective, the war is still trending in Ukraine's favor as long as uh, the wartime economy that the West is providing it can stay intact. The big, big, big wild card in that is a Donald Trump presidency in 2025. Um, so I just wondered, how does uh, a Trump presidency and the cutting off of all aid impact Ukraine's ability to resist going forward? Well, first of all, American aid has already been cut off. I mean, they've run out. And it's already felt very much in battlefield. You know, Ukraine is starved of ammunition. I don't know if President Trump, if he is re-elected, will necessarily cut off to Ukraine. His position, I think, has been a little bit more complex. What he said is that I have a peace plan to you know, end the war in 24 hours, and if Russia doesn't accept it, you know, I will double aid to Ukraine. That's literally what he said. So let's see Let's see what happens if and when. I wouldn't say that the, the situation necessarily favors Ukraine now. I mean, Ukraine has won the war of independence. Yeah, so let's that's, that's, that's keep this in perspective, that the major achievement of Ukraine is that it hasn't collapsed uh, and it remains a sovereign, viable state. Uh, but it hasn't won the war of territorial integrity and it will be a long time before and if it, it wins that war. So I think we are in the dynamic stalemate. It can break either way. And if it breaks in Russia's favor, I think significantly, it could also change opinions in the West because... We all say, oh my God, uh, well, you know, if, you know, we actually do have to care because it's serious. Uh, so hopefully it doesn't come to that. Just one final point. Um, let's say the worst happens uh, and Ukraine is forced to surrender much of its territory uh, to Russia. One, does Russia invade again, try and take Kiev once it's rebuilt its uh, military forces? And two, if Russia does inflict a defeat on the West, and it will be seen as a defeat on the West in Russia, does the war end on NATO's borders? Or do we move forward to uh, a situation in history where Russia and, and NATO are forever on the brink of some kind of conflagration uh, as a result of Russia winning in Ukraine? I think if Russia really manages to achieve strategic goals in Ukraine, it's hard to think how NATO survives that especially if that happens because the U.S. refuses to help. Because it will be such a direct threat to security of European nations that any future cohesion of NATO will be unthinkable. And also the deterrent power of, of Article 5 will also disappear. And so that's why countries on, on Russia's periphery think that a Russian victory in Ukraine will make them next In spite of some of the diplomatic chatter in the West, there is no prospect of any kind of agreement between Ukraine and Russia 
appearing on the horizon in the near future. And the only real influence the West has on the course of the conflict is a decision on whether to continue supporting Ukraine till victory or withdrawing support and allowing Russia to destroy Ukraine as a nation state, pushing the sphere of Russian control right up to within striking distance of Poland and the Baltic states. I'm Oz Katerji, and this is Not A Drill. This is Not A Drill was written and presented by Oz Katerji and produced by me, Robin Lieber. Group editor is Andrew Harrison and executive producer Martin Boytosh with music by Paul Hartman, socials by Jess Harpin, and art by Jim Parrott. And This Is Not A Drill is a Podmasters production.